Well, morning. So excited again to be here. Uh, you know what? I may have taken it for granted in the past, having people willing to listen to me. Uh, but after COVID now, uh, it feels so incredibly amazing. So uh, I'm so glad that you're here with us. Uh, just to let you know, I am starting three weeks annual leave tomorrow. So uh, you'll struggle to get a hold of me if you try. Uh, and that means coming up over the next few weeks, we have Jerome with his second ever sermon next week, uh, looking at Job, that's right. Yeah, Job for your second sermon. Um, I'm a cruel man. Anyway, uh, then we have PT coming and doing Psalms, and then we have Drew looking at Proverbs. So um, we've got a good lineup. so uh, I pray that will be very fruitful for you all as we go through. However, as you know, we've been doing our Old Testament overview series, a mammoth undertaking. We're doing a book of the Old Testament in order each week. And we're doing that in order to give us the historical context of the book, look at its major themes, and how does it reveal Jesus. And so this morning, we are up to the book of Esther. A number of people's favorite book. A lot of people love the book of Esther. So uh, I'm excited that we can look at it together this morning. Now, Esther, of course, is a book of courage. And it tells the story of the courage of Esther and of others. So really, I hope that this morning is going to be uplifting for you uh, and encouraging for you. So how does Esther fit into the big picture? So as you know, uh, if you've been with us on this journey, the Jews had been captured while well, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians and they've basically ended, they've been eradicated. Uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, has been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years at the end of 70 years, they are allowed to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And so that's what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks in Ezra and Nehemiah. So the group of returned exiles, about 55,000 people, went back to rebuild Jerusalem. Where does Esther fit in? Well, Esther is a part of the group who stay. So it's set in Babylon with the group who don't head back to rebuild Jerusalem. So there's your historical context, okay? So that's where all of this unfolds. The group who do not return to the promised land, but stay in Babylon. So there is our history. Now, our story begins. Now, as we read our Bibles together, this is going to be slightly confusing. Our story begins with King Ahasuerus. He is otherwise known as Xerxes. I'm only going to call him Xerxes the rest of the time because I can kind of pronounce that. So as we read together and you see Ahasuerus, um, I'm going to say Xerxes, his other name, all right? So just so you know what's going on. Otherwise, I'm just going to throw to Renee every time I need to say Ahasuerus and say, Renee, shout it out. Um, and she said, that's okay. So maybe I'll go with that option. Anyway, so Xerxes is what I will be doing. Our story begins with King Xerxes throwing a huge and extravagant party to celebrate how awesome he is. That's a good reason for a party, isn't it? Everybody, come over, I'm laying on a feast to celebrate how good I am. Uh, and so he lays on this huge party to celebrate how good he is, and it involves a whole lot of drinking. And so at the end of this days of partying, they're pretty much rolling drunk at this point in time. Now question, has anyone drunk 
in the history of the world ever made a dumb decision? Yeah, it may or may not result in some people getting a tattoo of a forex man on their left ankle. Um, not that I know anyone who would do that. Anyway, um, right, and so at the end of this partying and so on and so forth, he has this wonderful idea that drunk guys tend to come up with. He orders that his wife, Queen Vashti, be brought before him and his officials and princes. Let's read Esther 1, 10 to 12, if you have your Bible with you. Esther 1, 10 to 12. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizta, Abona, Bigtha, Agbatha, Zephyr, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Xerxes, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So, Queen Vashti is ordered to come with her crown, and she refuses. So, in my research, most scholars believe this, that when she is ordered to come before the king and his drunk friends with her crown, it means only her crown, if you catch my meaning. So, in other words, the king has this great drunk idea that the queen should come wearing nothing but her crown and be paraded in front of his drunk friends so they can all admire her beauty. There's a truly disgusting idea, is it not? So that's the king's plan, and the queen rightly refuses. She's like, guess what? I'm not actually up for that. Now, she knows full well that refusing an order of the king doesn't likely end well for her. But good honor that she's prepared to take a stand and not uh, be paraded around to the amusement of her drunk husband and friends. And then we read this truly awful response from cowardly men. This is Esther 1, 16 to 18. Then Memucan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Xerxes. Wow, she's done wrong against everyone by refusing that. How is that possible? Well, read on. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. <laughs> oh, hang on. A guy's wife refuses to braid nude in front of his drunk friends. That might spread. We better put a stop to this. How awful is this behavior? And so, thankfully, the queen shows some character and the queen, king ditches her quick smart. She is divorced, right? That is the outcome of our story. As an aside... I'm so glad that the New Testament teaches men to lay down their lives for their wives. To lay down their life and love their wife as Christ laid down his life 
for the church. That is the call of husbands. Man, you need to ask yourself regularly, and I've told you this before, is my wife closer to Christ for having married me? That is the charge of God on every husband. Is my wife closer to Christ, more Christ-like because she married me? Because the call of God in my life is to lay down my life for her to one day present her purified, beautiful, and radiant before the King of Kings. That is our call and charge. Now, don't get me wrong. You're not able to change your wife. The Holy Spirit must do that. If she refuses to follow Christ, you can't do that. But as much as is possible, that is the call on a husband. Right? As much as is possible, that is the call on a husband. And that is the call of men in the church. So I really want to just drive this home. There is no place in this church for men who treat their wives like possessions. Let me make it really clear. If you're in this church and your husband is abusive, you will get help from the elders. We will do what is necessary to protect you and help you. We're not going to pass it off. We're not going to say, well, a dutiful wife. No, we will do what is necessary to protect you. And if you're a man in this church who is treating abusively the woman you were called to lay down your life for, then you need to come and get help as well. All right? I want to make that clear. There is no place in the church for that behavior. We will do what we need to do to honor Christ. A little heavy, but it's the truth and it needs to be said. The next great move of Xerxes... So follow the flow of that story, right? Hey, wife, parade nude in front of me and my drunk friends. No, divorced. The next great move of this wonderful man uh, is he gets all the virgins of marriageable age throughout his entire realm, realm and he rounds them all up and it brings the whole lot to him so that he can find a new queen. And this is where we are introduced to Esther in chapter 2. She's a Jew and an orphan being brought up by her relative, Mordecai. Now, Esther is taken, not willingly, but they keep their Jewishness hidden, and Mordecai instructs Esther not to tell anyone. So we'll pick up our story there at chapter 2, 12 to 14. Chapter 2 of Esther 12 to 14. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king... After being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was their regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women. Now, I'll just pause there for a moment. I've preached this before, and I've had women go, you know what, that sounds all right. <laughs> six months of massaging? You know what, I'm in. Uh, it's the next bit that's the bit you're not so cool with, Okay. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashkaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. So here's what happens. These women would be rounded up 
all women of the right age who were virgins, they would all be rounded up and spend one year in beautifying. Now, what did beautifying entail? When we read the ancient records, we know part of it was putting on some weight because obviously the wealthy could afford, could afford food and so having a bit of weight was a symbol that you were doing well as well as you could not go in the sun because people who went in the sun got a tan which signified work. And so basically you had to spend 12 months in the shade so your skin would be as light as possible, another status symbol to show that you didn't work, you didn't need to work. So that was part of the process as well as obviously all of these oils, etc. essential oils, who knew back then? Uh, anyway, right, and so all of this was going on, uh, but then what would happen is you would get one night with the king to fulfill his desires, whatever he wanted, you got one night, then you got shipped back into the harem with all of the other concubines where you would spend the rest of your days. You may never be summoned again. So rounded up, taken from your families, from your homes, one night, shipped off into the harem, potentially that's where you live the rest of your days, never seeing the king again. Charming man, isn't he? Right? This is how he's treating all of these young women. Esther waits her turn. Eventually, she gets drawn out of the lottery and she spends her night with the king. He is so pleased with her that he announces Esther will be his new queen. Let's deal with a couple of questions that that raises. Was Esther sinning? And there's a few different angles to look at in that, isn't there? I mean, A, was she unmarried at the time she spends the night with the king? Is, is that a major sin here? Well, yes and no. The, the, the truth is that the moment the king summons her, she is bound to him for life. That's it. There's no changing that, so she is bound to that guy for the rest of her days, whether or not she ever actually saw him again. So she is actually bound to one man for life. However, we know that Esther kept her Jewishness hidden, partly by the instruction of her uncle. We also know that she does actually marry the king, who is a foreigner, which is forbidden by the Jewish law. We know that she partook in the feasting with Xerxes, and the foods that were provided were foods that were forbidden under the Jewish law. Was Esther a sinner who compromised her faith? Anyone? Yes, absolutely. No doubt in my mind whatsoever. Does it have to be that way? Well, let's go to the stories of Daniel and Shaq, Rack and Benny for the VeggieTales fans in uh, Babylon as well. Were they willing to compromise their faith? No. They stood their ground and saw how God would miraculously save them. So they were unyielding, unflinching, would not compromise their food, would not compromise their situation. And so they were unyielding in their commitment to God and God miraculously saved them. So where does that leave us with Esther? Well, I'll tell you where it leaves it with me. Someone I can identify with. Right? I look at some of those heroes of the faith. I look at the Shackrack and Bennies, etc., and I'm like, I just don't know if I've got that kind of courage. I don't. How would you know unless you're put in that situation, right? I look at them and I'm like, 
Daniel. I look at that figure, that great figure who stood down lions. Who, like, I look at those figures, but then I look at Esther and I go, you know, here's someone I kind of get. She's scared. She's worried. What will be the outcome if I reveal my Jewishness? What happens if I refuse to eat the king's food? She's afraid. I feel like that's a bit common to all of us, isn't it? So where does it leave us with Esther? It makes her a person that we understand. Ultimately, Esther is going to do something amazing in this story. And it continues the same trend we've seen through our entire journey of the Old Testament. God uses sinful, broken people for His glory. Amen? Good news. How many people in this church are sinful and broken? Yeah, all of you. Me as well. God uses sinful, broken people for His glory. Now, is that a good thing we sin? No, of course not. But we do. And God says, I will still use you for my glory. And that is good news. I'm glad for the courage that stories like Daniel give us, but I'm also glad for the hope that we find in the Estes, broken people who God uses. So let's turn to Esther chapter 2, 21 to 23. Esther 2, 21 to 23. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Now, this is really important. So, uh, Mordecai has been hanging out to check on Esther's welfare, uh, and because of that, he overhears this plot of eunuchs to assassinate the king, and the reality is these guys have access to the king, so this was a credible plot. And he tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, and it's able to be dealt with. Now, important thing to note, Esther gives the report in Mordecai's name. I mean, this is a good move, because it's honest. She could have claimed it for herself, hey, I overheard a couple of the eunuchs. No, she says, Mordecai has let me know, boom, gives him the praise, so good work from Esther, and also I bring note to this because it becomes really important for the story later on, all right? So just note, it was recorded, and the king knew about it, and we'll pick that up a little later. Let's read, uh, read Esther 3, 1 to 6. So the next part of our story, Esther 3, 1 to 6. After these days, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to Haman, to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. 
So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. All right, so Haman gets promotion, becomes 2IC under the king throughout the whole land, and Mordecai won't bow down to him. And here's what I would call an overreaction. Mordecai won't bow down to him, and so Haman orders that every Jew in the land be killed. Slight ego trip going on there, don't you think? Like, one guy won't bow down to me, who are his people, kill them all. Uh, I feel like they said that's a bit of an overreaction. But anyway, um, here's the thing. People get wound up about one particular fact about the book of Esther. What is unique about the book of Esther? Someone? God isn't mentioned by name. Thank you. So in the whole book, God's name is not mentioned. And some people find that a bit weird, and I guess it is odd. However, God is all throughout the book, if we just open our eyes to see. For instance... Why won't Mordecai bow down to Haman? It says in the text, because he's a Jew. So why, as Mordecai is a Jew, why won't he bow down to Haman? Because we bow down to God alone, okay? So his faith in God is absolute. He refuses to bow down to an earthly ruler because his Lord is God in heaven. So God is all through the book of Esther, it is unique, though, and it doesn't mention God by name. It certainly mentions him in outcome, in outworking continually. So I'm not too worried about that, but just so you know, it is unique. But that is why Mordecai won't bend the knee, because he will bend to God alone. Now, as I said, Haman gets a bit incensed by this, wants to kill them all. Uh, and the rest of chapter 3, which I won't go into in detail, is Haman tricks the king into signing a decree to kill all of the Jews, men, women, and children. Now, at this stage, I'm not surprised that he's able to trick the king. I'm not all that impressed at this king's skills, intelligence, ability. Uh, anyway, um, and so he is able to trick the king into signing a document which will kill everyone. In chapter 4, Mordecai finds out about this and he contacts Esther. And what is her response? Again, I just want to pause. Esther's initial response is, hang on, whoa, I can't do anything about that. If I go to the king without being summoned, I'll be put to death. Don't you find that kind of refreshing? Who here is that's going to be your initial reaction? It's going to be mine. Now, I like to think that in time I will faithfully follow God, but you can't tell me my initial response isn't going to be, uh-oh, right? And that's Esther's response. She's a, this is a real person in a real story. She knows to go before the king unannounced is death. Mordecai says, hey, Esther, how about you go see the king about this? And she's like, nah, right? I want you to feel that truth, that story, the realness of it. Esther's a real person in a real situation and she feels the weight of what it would mean for her to step out in faith. It's okay. It's okay, church, for you to feel the same way. When God lays a burden on your heart to step out boldly, to step out in some kind of faith position, it's okay to feel nerves about that. I mean, it's truth. Go back to the burning bush and Moses. 
Uh, I can't really speak. I don't really know what to do. You should probably pick somebody else. Right? He's nervous about it. He's fearful about it. It's okay as long as in the end we put our trust in God. But the nerves are real and they're recorded here for us. And Esther, who I believe is a hero of the faith, is not without her moments of doubt. Right? And we will feel them as well. And so we get to uh, Mordecai and his response. And so we need to read this. This is Esther chapter 4, 12 to 17. Esther chapter 4, 12 to 17. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Now, that's an important point. I'm just going to read this bit by bit. Haman has organized that every Jew, man, woman, and child, will be put to death. Why does Esther think that she will escape that? But he's just kind of pointing that out. Hang on a second. If this goes ahead, you could be in trouble anyway. So it's just making her aware of the situation. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Now, how absolute is Mordecai's faith? How strong is that? We are God's chosen people, and he said it, uh, we'll have descendants as numerous as the stars, that from the line of David a descendant will come who will reign on the throne forever. So don't think for a moment that we, the Jewish people, will be wiped out. God will bring deliverance. Absolute. He's got no doubt. However, you can be a part of his plan of salvation or you can sit on the sidelines and miss it. That's Mordecai's point. It's a great challenge to us, isn't it? God's will will be done. God will build his kingdom. God will glorify himself. It's all going to God's appointed end and we can be a part of that, sharing the good news, seeing people come to faith or we can sit on the sidelines and miss it. Now, we'll be saved by grace through faith but we miss the opportunity to have Christ say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've worked hard. You've served me faithfully. Well done. Right? So Mordecai points that out to Esther. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Who does that make you think of? Anyone? Who in the Old Testament? Come on. Someone saying it? Joseph, where'd that come from? Good work, Joseph. Joseph, you know the story of Joseph? And again, the Bible only gives us the details that are necessary to kind of tell the picture of God's story of salvation. So it doesn't go deeply into experiences and emotions and thoughts. It hints at them. But you can't tell me Joseph, in his whole experience, didn't go through some ups and downs. My brothers are going to kill me. Oh no, they throw me in a ditch. Oh no, they sell me into slavery. Oh, at least I end up at this guy's house. Oh, I get accused of rape. Oh, I'm now in jail, right? You can't tell me there wasn't low points in Joseph's life. There wasn't times when Joseph wasn't going, why? Why? 
And yet, as we know, God raised him up to becoming two I see over all of Egypt. So when the famine hits, God's people are saved from starvation. What you meant for harm, God meant for good, says Joseph. Right? It's the same idea. Church, can I put this challenge out to you now? I really want you to think about this for a moment. Whatever it is you do, maybe you're an electrician or maybe you're fixing fridges or maybe you're committed to making protein powders for work uh, or maybe you're a stay-at-home mum or maybe you're in town planning, whatever that is. Anyway, um, maybe you're in any one of those things. Can I get you to think about the fact that God can have you there for a reason and purpose far beyond anything you comprehend on the normal level? For such a time as this, who knows why God has brought you to that place, but you need to start each and every day, and I don't care if that's at 4 a.m. with a crying child, I don't care if that's when you head off to work, but you need to start each and every day saying, what are the possibilities of what God might have brought me to this day? If I act in faith, if I step out boldly, how might God use me today for His glory, because this is what we see in Esther. This is Mordecai's point. Esther, it all seemed bad. You were carted off to be in a harem against your will. You were taken off into this situation. Who knew? God knew what was going to happen, and Esther is in a position now where she can influence the king. Who knows how God might use you? I've told you before about Gary and Helen that came to faith in Uh, My last church, Gospel Church, Beth's a nurse. She's got a little Jesus fish tattooed on her wrist. uh, And Gary was a patient and he noticed that and he said to Beth, that means you're a Christian, doesn't it? And Beth said, yeah. And he said, my friend at work's been telling me about that. I'm just not good enough for God. Beth said, oh, really? Let me tell you the good news. You're not. But Jesus died for you. A few weeks later, he came to church, and he and his girlfriend came to faith. Amazing story, part of our church. Beth, when she headed off to be a nurse that day, didn't know that her real job that day was to be an ambassador of the king. I don't care what it is you do, but start the day saying, Lord, use me for your glory. Use me for your will, whatever that might be, because for such a time as this, he may have put you in that place. And who knows what God might do if you are faithful. Esther is worried. She's frightened. She's not jumping up and down saying, Woohoo, I'm so happy that I'm in this place. But she is faithful. And that's what matters. Now, in chapter 5, Esther begins her plan to win favor with the king and is building towards asking him. Uh, Haman is still mad about Mordecai and orders gallows to be built to hang Mordecai upon. Now, I cannot skip chapter 6 of the book of Esther because, if you are unaware, it is the funniest chapter in the Bible. Seriously, if you want to laugh, chapter 6 
book of Esther. Do you remember how I pointed earlier that Haman is basically an egotistical maniac, right? So, you know, one person offended me, kill every man and woman and child of that, that race. So he's an egotistical maniac, and then we have this incredible and amazing story that comes to us from chapter 6. Now, I'm going to summarize it a little bit, and then we'll look at it in more detail. Here's the summary. King Xerxes can't sleep one night, literally. He's just lying awake going, what am I going to do? And there's no test match cricket to watch, so he's like, somebody bring me the book of deeds, and I'll read that, and that'll probably put me to sleep. And so he orders the book brought, and he sits there and he reads it. And then, remember I said, pay attention because it becomes important later, he reads about Mordecai saving his life from the assassination attempt. And he's like, that's right, I remember that now. He also reads that he didn't do anything for Mordecai. He's like, oh, that's bad form. I really should do something nice for that fellow who saved my life. Uh, And so the next day he's pretty excited about that. Now, the next day Haman comes to see the king. But before he can speak, the king says, well, hang on, Haman, before you speak, I've got something I want to say. And we'll pick up chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. Esther 6, 6 to 9. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honour? And Haman, Mr. Egotistical, said to himself, whom would the king delight to honour more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honour, let royal robes be brought which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let him dress the man whom the king delights to honour, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honour. And the king says to Haman, that is fantastic, that is a great idea, everything you've just said, do it for Mordecai. And you be the official that leads him on the horse. How funny is that, right? I just think that is amazing. So Haman lays out the most extravagant idea that he can think of, because he thinks it's coming for him. Instead, he has to lead Mordecai, his sworn enemy, through the city that cracks me up massively. What a blow to that ego. I just get a great picture too from um, verse 13. And Haman told his wife and all his friends everything that had happened to him. I just sort of picture Haman going home to his wife. You couldn't, what a day, it was horrible. Uh, Anyway, so he goes home. He's absolutely devastated. What a day for Haman. God is in control. God is in control. It's interesting, if you actually read the rest of verse 13, Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. She gets it. She's seen enough to know who God is. She doesn't worship him herself, but she can see the power he has, and she's like, hang on, mate, if you pit yourself against the God of the Jews... It's not going to work. You are sure to fall. Good advice. Man, if your wives tell you that you're making a decision which pits you against God, listen. I know I've tried it a couple of times in my Christian walk. Anyone else ever have a go? 
I know better than you, God. Let me have a crack. It never works. Never, right? You make those decisions, it won't work. God is in control. Perhaps the stories of Daniel and Shakrach and Benny had been circulated. Perhaps that's why his wife knows who God is. Nonetheless, she knows enough to know that God's will cannot be altered. And then we get to Esther taking her chance finally to to step out in faith and boldly tell the king what's going on. And so we'll pick it up in chapter 7, 3 to 6. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, And if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy the wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. So Esther takes her chance, brings Haman before the king and his plot, and she succeeds. The king is furious, and in the final irony, Haman is hanged upon the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. God is in control. We'll then read in chapter 8, Esther pleads with the king to rescind the order to kill all of the Jews that Haman had had signed, and the king agrees. In chapter 9, I encourage you to read through yourself, uh, the positions are so reversed that the Jews are able to actually track down those who had conspired to put them to death, and instead are able to put them to death, right? So the fortune turns completely under God's sovereign In Esther chapter 10, we get this little piece about Mordecai, that he was great, that he was loved by all, that he becomes the 2IC and that he seeks the welfare of his people and peace for his people and Mordecai shines as a good man at the end of the story, much like Esther shines as a good woman. So where is Jesus in the book of Esther? And Esther is almost unique in how it foreshadows Christ. What is actually the call on Esther? The call on Esther is to be willing to lay down her life so that the many can be saved. That's the picture the book of Esther paints for us. Esther, are you willing to give up your life in the hope that the many will be saved? And of course, it just points us directly at Christ. It foreshadows Christ, but in Christ, what we have is the story that all people are sinful and have fallen short of the glory of God, that His judgment sits on each and every person, and Christ willingly gave up His life, willingly laid down His life to pay the penalty of your sin and mine that we could have life in His name. Esther points at a flawed sinner 
and puts her trembling and fearful about giving up her life, but it points to Christ who will willingly step down from heaven and in the ultimate humility take on the form of a servant and lay down his life to free you from sin and death so that you can have life in his name. Esther foreshadows what Christ will do. Right? So that is how it points at Jesus. So what I want to do, just quickly to finish. In the Bible, we have these great stories which encourage us and give us faith to boldly follow Christ. But history gives us a lot of stories as well of men and women who are willing to boldly step out and follow Christ in faith, which encourages. Now, many of you might know who William Carey is. He was the father of modern missions, who started the modern mission movement, or Hudson Taylor, who founded the uh, China Inland Mission. We've got Livingston, C.T. Studd, so on and so forth. But I want to encourage us with some of the godly women who have made courageous steps this morning of faith. And so I'm just going to read three quick, really quick stories of some godly woman, women showing us courage to boldly follow Christ. So quickly, Betsy Stockton, she was around from 1798 to 1865. She was a, uh, a Mer- black American woman who was freed from slavery. So what did she do with her freedom? She was the first female missionary to Hawaii. So she went to Hawaii where she began to preach the good news. While she was there, she set up a school to the poor people of the island, the fishermen, farmers, and craftsmen, and began to teach them and proclaim the good news. This is what Betsy did with her freedom. Uh, Amy Carmichael, you might have heard of, from 1867 to 1951. She was a small village girl from a devout Presbyterian family in Northern Ireland, and she went to work among the mill girls of Manchester and then finding her lifelong vocation in India. One of her major achievements was Hindu priests kept temple children, young girls who worked as prostitutes to earn money for them, and she set up a place to free those children. Lastly, Jackie Pullinger, who is still alive today. She's quite old now, if you're not familiar with Jackie Pullinger. But at the age of 22, she decided to be a missionary and she ended up going to the walled city of Hong Kong. Now, if you've never heard of the walled city, a section of Hong Kong was so uh, run by the triads, criminal gangs, mafia, prostitutes, drugs, it was so bad, the government in the end walled in like six city blocks and the police left, and they just walled it in and walked away. Jackie Pullinger went in there as a missionary. That's full on, isn't it? Felt the call of God, and she went in there, and she saw so many come to faith as she proclaimed the gospel in that place. Uh, she saw people coming off drugs. She established youth work in there. She did all kinds of crazy stuff as she stepped out in faith. Praise God for the Esthers. Not everyone is called to that kind of service. Right? It's just like the biblical stories to me. They're, they're, they're amazing. They're incredible acts of faith. They're, they're incredible stories where you're like, 
man, I don't know if I could do that. And guess what? You can't. But if God calls and enables, you can. And that would be the first thing I imagine someone like Jackie Pullinger would tell you. But here's the challenge. Let those stories inspire you to be faithful where you are right now. Right? That's what we need to think about. Let the story of Esther encourage you to think, how can I be courageous where I am right now? Like I said, each day, start the day, God, use me for your glory. Maybe it's a simple conversation with somebody. Maybe it is teaching your children the gospel not just teaching them laws, but teaching them the gospel and what that means. Um, Who knows what it might mean, but let God use you each day for His glory. Be faithful in what He has called you to do. I hope Esther and these women encourage you to keep pressing on for Christ's glory. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the story of Esther, who we see is not perfect. She has fears. She, at times, compromised. She struggled. And yet, Lord, you used her for your glory. In the end, Lord, she put her faith in you. She trusted you and saw amazing things happen. Lord, I pray for the women and the men of this church for that same faith. Lord, we know we're all flawed. We know we are all saved by faith alone. And yet, Lord, you use broken people for your glory. We simply pray and ask that you would use us. Lord, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, you would use us to build your kingdom and to glorify the name of Christ. Lord, may we see amazing stories come through broken people like us because Christ is faithful. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.